Welcome to the Borders in Globalization podcast. Welcome to our listeners. My name is Ben. I'm a researcher with the Borders in Globalization project. I'm speaking from the traditional territory of the Lekwegen people in the Selish Sea region. Today, we are going to talk about history of cross-border cooperation in Europe since 1945 with Birte Wassenberg, professor in contemporary history at the Institute for Political Studies of the University of Strasbourg in France. Welcome on board, Birte Wassenberg. It's great to see you. Yeah, hello. <laughs> As we know, Birte, the borders reflects a division of the world into territorialized state, legal and political orders that are spatially separated by territorial delimitations. Cross-border cooperation connects local and subnational authorities on both sides and across borders. This phenomenon, in fact, challenges both the monopoly of external actions of the state and the nature of the legal limit of borders for subnational actions. Before getting into substance of this topic, I wanted to make a quick detour on a matter of terminology. What is cross-border cooperation? And is there a difference between the expressions transboundary cooperation and cross-border cooperation, or the two expressions have the same meaning? Uh, I would say that uh, in Europe, um, we normally use rather the term of cross-border cooperation, uh, since it's also translated from other languages like uh, grenzüberschreitende Zusammenarbeit in German, for example, or uh, cooperation transfrontalière. Transboundary cooperation, I would say, is less used. Sometimes it's used in the um, in the scientific literature and more, I would say, by the Anglophone um, uh, researchers. I don't think that the um, theoretical um, differentiation um, made between these two um, terms. But there is, however, another term which uh, is used increasingly in Europe, which is territorial cooperation. And territorial cooperation has been introduced by the European Commission uh, with the social and um, cohesion policy. And as you can see from the term, the border there has disappeared. So this has a uh, I would say, an implication in terms of meaning, because territorial means that we want to get rid of the border, whereas if we say transboundary or cross-border, it means the, the way that we cross the border, that we overcome the border, that's the important term. And this is why I prefer the term transborder or cross-border to the term of territorial cooperation. I prefer the, uh, I prefer the um, expression cross-border or transboundary, but we usually in Europe use cross-border. And I prefer largely cross-border because territorial means that you want, it's ideological in a way, you want the border to disappear. It's no longer in the term. Whereas cross-border means that you have to overcome the border. And I believe that uh, cross-border cooperation is all about overcoming borders and not about getting rid of them, really, in at least not getting rid of them um, completely. And this is why I prefer cross-border cooperation as a term. But the European Union uses increasingly now nowadays no longer cross-border, but territorial cooperation. 
Okay, I understand better. Thank you, Birte. This uh, different terminology can make uh, things very confusing sometimes. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have now a very general historical question. In the long and complex development of cross-border cooperation in Europe, is it possible to identify several historical phases in the history of this phenomenon since 1945? How yes. has the phenomenon of cross-border cooperation evolved over time? Uh, just uh, Ben, just uh, uh, another uh, small comment on the terminology. When you talk about cross-border cooperation, you also have to add other terminologies like for example, interregional cooperation, where you have different regions cooperating, not necessarily separated by a border. And you also have to add the uh, cooperation décentralisée, decentered cooperation, which is largely used in France uh, to, de to designate cooperation of local and regional authorities with uh, um, north-south cooperation with uh, um, states in Africa and Asia, for example, to do development policy on the local um, scale. So uh, territorial cooperation, just to complete the, the, uh, the, the terminology, on globes um, also all these terms, decentered, cross-border, interregional, whereas um, cross-border is really specific uh, about cooperation uh, on, on, on the border itself. That's just to, to complete the, because when you said confusing, yes, because there are also other terminologies that you have to kind of um, put all together in order to be able to understand really what you mean by cross-border cooperation. Uh, when I come to the history now, cross-border cooperation um, uh, has, yes, there are phases uh, that you can identify in cross-border cooperation, I would say, from the end of the Second World War. But you could also, I mean, I'm a historian um, uh, who is specialized in the post-45 period, but you can also identify cross-border co cooperation beforehand um, uh, in, for example, in the interwar period in Europe. Uh, but normally when we talk about cross-border cooperation as a phenomenon of um, uh, wanting to, um, uh, to get to an integrated cross-border space and to complement the process of European integration, then I would say that we can say, yes, uh, we start in 45 and uh, when when the process of European integration uh, starts and I would say there is a first phase from 45 to 19 to the 70s, which is a phase in which we have cross-border cooperation developing in certain border regions in Western Europe, mainly in the founding member states of the European community, for example, between France uh, and Germany, but also in the Benelux states. And these Corporations are um, initiated by local um, actors, uh, very often more local than regional actors like towns, but also sometimes some regions or departements. And they uh, uh, do a rather informal cooperation uh, and they start to institutionalize also this cooperation, but under the form of private associations, which are very informal, but which have one thing in common with the European integration process is that one of the objectives of this cross-border cooperation is to promote peace in Europe and to bring the populations from one side and the other together in the border regions after the atrocities of the Second World War. So this is something which happens mainly in Western Europe, 45 to 70. But then we have a problem in the 70s of uh, cross-border 
cooperation being um, um, uh, identified by the states as a problem. This has happened, for example, in the cross-border regions between France and Germany. The French state suddenly realized that there are local actors doing foreign policy with the Germans. And uh, that this poses a legal problem because the local actors have no competence in foreign policy. And so the 1970s are marked uh, from the 1970s until I would say the 1990s. We have a phase of, I have um, called this a legitimation uh, of cross-border cooperation or um, in institutionalization, a legal framework given to cross-border cooperation throughout Europe by the national states. The national states legitimize cross-border cooperation by uh, concluding bilateral or trilateral um, uh, treaties, inter intergovernmental treaties. And these treaties put the cross-border cooperation of local and regional actors into a certain framework. Not This has not happened for all uh, border regions in Europe, but for those who have initiated cross-border cooperation in the 50s or, and 60s, this has started happening in the 1970s. And um, uh, the main actor on the European level was the um, uh, Council of Europe, which has adopted in 1980 um, a framework convention on cross-border cooperation. And this framework convention is kind of the European legal framework for the uh, for the for for legitimizing cross-border cooperation of local and regional actors. I would say there is a third phase of cross-border cooperation starting from the 1990s. This is very marked by the introduction by the European Commission of the um, Interact program, which uh, creates a link between local and regional actors in Europe and the European Union. And the European Commission, um, it's done in the, the framework of the regional policy. It also makes the local and regional actors at the borders contribute to the project of the single European market. So from then on, cross-border cooperation contributes to the European integration by means of the social and cohesion policy, regional policy, cohesion policy. And it's also a phase in the 1990s because of this program when we have a generalization of cross-border cooperation throughout Europe. We have at the one side, uh, the regions in Western Europe or in Northern Europe that had not so much engaged on cross-border cooperation, which also now do interact, for example, Spain, France, uh, or Denmark, Germany. But we also have, uh, of course, all the Eastern and Central European um, regions who, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, can also uh, contribute to cross-border cooperation, and they are also um, supported by the European Union. So this is, for me, from the 1990s, is a third phase. And I would add another phase of cross-border cooperation in the uh, from 2004 onwards, when the European Union has introduced uh, the European neighborhood policy, because at that point, I think that cross-border cooperation in Europe um, uh, acquires a geopolitical function, because with the enlargement to Central and Eastern Europe, uh, there is now not longer just the objective of cross-border cooperation to contributing uh, to the single European market, but also to contributing to, contributing to good neighborhood relations with external uh, states. For example, Belarus or Russia uh, or Ukraine. Um, uh, this is a different type of cross-border cooperation and the different objectives because these countries not all want to join uh, or some of them never would join the European Union. So it's a question of uh, good neighborhood relations, also of stability of borders in Europe and the contribution of this cross-border cooperation to this uh, um, stability and De democratic stability in Europe, as the Council of Europe has put it. That's in the 2000s. And if you want to 
at a last phase of uh, cross-border cooperation, we might add a phase from 2015 onwards, which is a phase of crisis, because uh, from 2015 onwards with the terrorist and migration crisis, and later on with the COVID crisis, we have a phase of um, rebordering in Europe. And so cross-border cooperation is put into question in uh, border regions in the European Union. And there's the question of how these local and regional actors react to the rebordering and how they show uh, or do not show resilience. So uh, I would say we are now in a last, in a new phase uh, of cross-border cooperation, which is still uh, a, a phase of crisis, uh, maybe cross-border cooperation in crisis 2015 to today. That's what I would identify as phases in cross-border cooperation. Thank you, Birte. Wow. Um, <clears throat> a quote is well known uh, throughout the world of border studies, namely, borders are scars of history. This quotation is often used to justify the existence of cross-border cooperation in Europe. But where does this phrase come from? Borders are scars of history. So borders are scars of history. This comes from um, Alfred Moser, who um, is, he who was one of the pioneers of cross-border cooperation at the Dutch-German uh, border. He was Dutch and German. He had both nationalities. Opted for the uh, uh, finally for the uh, Dutch nationality after the Second World War. And he was working for the first European Commission of Walter Hallstein in the 1950s. And he so was an actor in European integration, the first uh, steps of European integration with the common market. And uh, he realized that maybe um, what has happened uh, on the European level uh, should also be put in the border regions. And as he, uh, he, he was originally from the border region between, uh, Germany and Netherlands in Gronau. He's one of the founders of the first, um, OI Regio in Gronau, um, at that border. He, um, he, uh, identified, uh, the borders as the scars of history, which should not be eliminated, as he said, but should be overcome. Uh, and uh, this was uh, then uh, later on always quoted by specialists uh, in the history, but also specialists of cross-border cooperation in general to um, to give this cross-border cooperation kind of motive or a, a motivation and an objective. Um, scars of history, because at the borders, it's where the uh, where the wars have uh, created a lot of sufferings, where um, uh, the borders are drawn is often very arbitrary, so the population sometimes are displaced. Uh, the sufferance at the border itself is often very uh, hard, and so uh, you can identify them as a kind of uh, scar of history. And the scar is the image that you know you have to heal uh, this uh, this uh, separation which has been created by the wars and by the tracing, the arbitrary tracing of borders in in Europe. So that was his his quotation has been taken up again. Afterwards, uh, for example, also um, uh, by other uh, pioneers of cross-border cooperation. And so there are uh, sometimes different personalities that are quoted. Also, Victor von Malkus, for example, has reused it. But at the origin, it was uh, Alfred Moser in the 1950s who used it for the first time. Thank you, Birte, for these precisions. Uh, you spoke about uh, Victor von Malkus and uh, in a 1972 report, named the Cooperation of European Frontier Regions, Victor von Malkus listed the objectives of what he calls 
Suprafrontier Cooperation. Who is the other and what is his contribution to the development of cross-border cooperation? What do you think about him? So Victor von Malkos, he was uh, one of the founders uh, of the Association for European Border Regions, which was founded in 1971. He is German and he was also a member of the um, uh, Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. And he was an, he lobbied very much in the Council of Europe for the um, uh, for the creation of a conference of regional authorities, because there had been in the 50s already a conference of local uh, authorities. And this has been then enlarged in 1975 to a conference of local and regional authorities. And Victor von Marcus, together with others um, in the Parliamentary Assembly and in the Council of Europe, they um, created, they were uh, organizing what they called uh, some conferences called a confrontation of regional confrontations, where they, uh, they talked a lot about space planning. He was very specialized in space planning. And, um, and so the worst reports about problems of cross-border regions that were presented in the Council of Europe were uh, on these uh, problems, economic problems of border regions, um, uh, which were uh, often identified at the beginning as problematic regions because they were at the periphery and they had a lot of uh, problems of regional development. So that's the origin of, uh, of this. And uh, the 1972 report uh, was one report, but there were others that were then introduced in the, uh, in the Council of Europe. And they finally, in fact, led uh, to the introduction of this idea of a uh, of a, um, a framework convention on cross border cooperation in 1981 in in the Council of Europe. Thank you, Birte, for that answer. Yeah, this topic of cross border cooperation is very dense, very rich, very complex. We spoke about different terminologies. We spoke about different phases, different actors. Uh, it's very complex and very interesting topic. Um, let us now move on the complex domain on, on the one hand of the actors. You spoke about the Council of Europe, but let's speak now about the actors of cross-border cooperation and on the other hand of the tools of cross-border cooperation. Firstly, Birte, what are the different actors involved in the phenomenon of cross-border cooperation? Okay, this is also a very large question. Um, generally, we say that in Europe, we put an emphasis on local and regional actors because um, uh, this is the specificity of cross-border cooperation in Europe and which has started, in fact, in the 19, uh, after the Second World War, uh, first with the, um, with the twin towns. Um, that's uh, when they started to build up uh, cross-border associations. So we really put an emphasis on these sub-national uh, actors but uh, these are not, I mean, they are um, not only public actors, not only towns or regions or uh, or um, uh, um, local and regional authorities, but there are also private actors. We have, for example, chambers of commerce uh, that have been ex extremely dynamic also in cross-border uh, cooperation. Sometimes we have um, also enterprises, firms that are cooperating. We have also, for example, trade unions, um, or uh, corporations uh, and uh, associations. Uh, so we have even a link to the civil society and we can decline the cross-provocation right to the citizens, if, if you like. And um, uh, then we also have to take into account uh, with, um, when we talk about actors, that we when we talk about infranational actors, there is a whole variety of these actors in Europe because uh, each state has a different administrative organization. And if I take, for example, Germany as a case study, uh, for example, in Germany, we have 
we have cities, but we have also um, uh, um, communes that are put together in a larger um, conglomeration that can also be actors of cross-border cooperation. Then we have the lender, which are federal states. They are states, but they're still sub-national because they're not on the federal level, but below the federal level. So we do have a lot of different regional actors that we have to take into account. And then um, I insist that uh, normally you can, in a lot of cases, um, not do cross-border cooperation either without the national states. Uh, if we take, for example, um, the case of France, which is a very highly centralized state, um, uh, if we contractualize uh, cross-border cooperation, in the end, you always have the state represented via, for example, the regional representation of the prefecture or even the national state from coming from uh, somebody from a ministry in Paris or even the Quai d'Orsay, the foreign minister. Um, so in, in fact, what um, the, 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 I would say the richness of cross-border cooperation is that we have a multitude uh, of actors uh, involved in, in, in Europe. And the specificity of Europe with regard to other regions in the world, if we compare it, for example, to America or um, to, uh, to, um, to Asia, is that we have these, um, this dynamic intervention of sub-national uh, entities, public and private ones, that are really largely, in, and especially public ones, that are largely involved in cross-border cooperation. And I have to add a last um, actor which we must not forget and which is due to the process of European integration. There are also European actors in, in um, cross-border cooperation, especially the European Union, European Commission, but also the Parliament nowadays, the, the Committee of Regions. There is also the Council of Europe, the Congress of Local and Regional Authorities, and we have uh, European groupings, uh, the Association for European Border Regions, for example, and uh, these are um, uh, actors that, uh, that uh, intervene on a European level. So as a high complexity also of, a, I would say, a multi-level actor uh, constellation in Europe. Yeah, I think it's a good name, constellation of different actors. Um, okay, there are many tools also for cross-border cooperation. We just uh, spoke about the actors, but let's now speak a little bit about the tools for cross-border cooperation. Of course, we cannot present everything today in this podcast. Um, and we will talk later about the specific case of the European Grouping of Territorial Cooperation, or EGTC. But in the 70s and uh, in the 80s, cross-border cooperation saw the development of many working communities, as the working community of the Central Alps or uh, for the Pyrenees. And some of these uh, working communities have evolved in their status and have become Euro regions. Could, uh, could you tell us a, a word about th these two types of cross-border institutions? Well, here again, we have a, uh, also we have to clarify the terminology. In fact, uh, you cannot say really that a working community in the uh, Euro region is necessarily something different. Uh, what we have to distinguish in uh, when we talk about tools, or I would say like uh, institutionalized cross-border cooperation, is the degree of institutionalization. A lot of um, working groups. Uh, sometimes like the, um, uh, the working community of the Central Alps, they are, uh, uh, or the Pyrenees, uh, from the 70s and 80s, they started as, as informal, uh, groups with no legal basis. They were not even constituted as an association. Uh, they were just, uh, a working group, uh, and, uh, they had, uh, no formal, 
um, uh, um, basis to, to uh, it was just an agreement between the actors to 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 meet and to talk about issues of cross border um, cross border problems. Um, whereas later on, uh, I mean, the in the 1960s, I mean, already in 1960s in Western Europe, but uh, increasingly also in the 1990s, then later on. The uh, local actors in some regions uh, went beyond these working groups and said, we want to have something more formal. And they uh, uh, then created associations, but they were private associations. That's, for example, Regio Basiliensis. Regio Basiliensis is not called a Euregio, it's called a Regio. But it's, in fact, if you like, the same thing, because Euregios, um, the main uh, number of Euregios you can find them in Central and Eastern Europe. They were actually created in the 1990s by the Central and Eastern local and regional authorities who really wanted to show their willingness to participate in European integration. So they were forming these associations. They called them Euroregions. Uh, and that was um, uh, a designation a little bit uh, with an ideologic behind, uh, let's say, to say, um, uh, Euro we are a Euroregion, we want to be pro-European. That's why they call them Euroregions. In France, you do not have one single Euroregion because the term Euroregion is problematic. The French state doesn't like it because you could uh, you could qualify it as being secessionist or regionalist. Uh, if you look at, for example, the Catalan region, uh, uh, fearing that, you know, maybe there could be a separatist uh, movement uh, to, to against the state. So the French authorities do not like your region. But what, however you call it, Regio, Euregio, or any other designation, these are all uh, private associations. And later on, we have also some more, um, uh, uh, some public um, uh, legal basis. Uh, which are used for cross-border institutions. And the, as you, you have the, the legal basis from the European Union is the European Grouping for Territorial Cooperation, but that was only created in 2008. And we had some other um, uh, legal basis that we could use beforehand. For example, in our cross-border regions, for example, there was also the European um, Economic uh, um, uh, Association. I mean, this, this is a grouping. This was used uh, by, uh, for example, for an institution here, the Euro Institute, uh, which wanted to have a more formalized public uh, legal basis, but it was normally uh, something foreseen for the private sector. But they are still uh, now based on this economic uh, grouping. Uh, then there are also there was also um, uh, when in the cases where we have bilateral or trilateral treaties, uh, we had, for example, the Karlsruhe Agreement here in between Luxembourg, uh, Switzerland, Germany. Uh, and France, and they uh, in in 1996, and when they uh, this uh, treaty uh, created the possibility to uh, of a, a transnational uh, basis, uh, legal basis, which was called the cross border um, uh, grouping. Uh, it has been also used uh, by some of the institutions here, and nowadays uh, these different tools are actually replaced by the European tool, which is the EGTC. Uh, so um, I would say that uh, if you want to make a differentiation is on one side, we have a public institutionalized legal framework, EGTC, for example. On the other side, we have a more informal way of cooperating working groups or even private associations because private law is not the same and it's much more flexible. 
Wow, thank you very much for this presentation of this high level of complexity and diversity between the different tools. Uh, you spoke uh, multiple times about this European Outline Convention on Transfrontier Cooperation between Territorial Communities or Authorities, also called the Madrid Convention. <clears throat> uh, an author like Ivo Dushasek had already been able to speak of transborder regionalism or global micro-diplomacy in his 1986 book, The Territorial Dimension of Politics Within, Among and Across Nations. So my question is, is this one, Birte. How can we define a cross-border region? And, and also, what are the, the factors, the most important factors in the emergence of cross-border institutions? Okay. Um, the, I mean, transborder regionalism, I would say micro-diplomacy or transborder regionalism has a more political um, uh, outset or objective. It's uh, um, putting together... Um, local or regional actors across the border in order to def defend uh, common uh, um, political objectives. So it could be, for example, to gain more money in interact programs, but it could also be more political. For example, I talked about the Catalan region to have, you know, more independence from the state. Uh, so this is, you know, micro diplomacy is something that uh, is much more political. When you talk about a cross-border region, I think you can say it's not necessarily, um, an, uh, behind this is not necessarily the idea to create an independent or state-independent entity. A cross-border region is for me uh, more a space in which regional, local or other actors uh, cooperate and uh, cooperate on a permanent basis because um, uh, the population is on one side and the other of the border and we need to develop tools to cross the borders and to uh, develop projects and to uh, to um, uh, create, uh, if you like, uh, a, a sort of common living space. So I would, um, I would uh, put cross-border region a little bit more on the on the field not of politics, but more on the field of space planning, having a common cross-border space, a transnational space, or also um, uh, maybe on the on the level of um, uh, of uh, creating um, links, uh, permanent links between political actors in the region, between economic actors in the region, and between also on the uh, uh, in the framework of the population. And when you and cross-border institutions are created in order to maintain uh, this permanent link or to structure it, uh, you can have this on a political level. You can, for example, create institutions, governance institutions, uh, which, for example, reunite the um, presidents of the regions or the executives of the uh, regional authorities. You can also have this on the level of the towns, of the cities, when you have, for example, a, a framework in which the mayors uh, border cities uh, meet. We have, if I give two examples of my region, the Upper Rhine region has the uh, cross-border um, Upper Rhine Conference, where we have the regional authorities, the, uh, the presidents of the regions meeting of the lender and the cantons. And we have also the Euro district Strasbourg-Kiel, where we have the mayor of Strasbourg-Kiel and the Altenau, 
who are in a political framework linked together. These institutions often have been fortified in the uh, with uh, in the 19 from the 1990s onwards with common secretariats. They are kind of I call them always mini European commissions that are put into place in the cross border regions in order to assure that the political decisions on what we are doing for the cross border region are also implemented uh, on an administrative level. So these um, common secretariats make sure that we the cross border activities are then implemented and so you have um uh, you you also have to underline that uh, there are a whole multitude and variety of cross border institutions throughout europe not one is like the other because um each uh, cross-border region has its own history of cross-border cooperation and so it has its own cross-border institutions that take into account the history and also the, the specificity of the political and historical and economic context of the regions and that can be very different. The only common institutions that you do have in Europe are the interact secretariats which are also cross-border institutions because the European Commission has insisted on harmonizing or having a, um, a, a common approach to these institutions. So, so each European region has an interact secretariat, which is kind of similar, and it's also a cross-border institution. This is also uh, uh, making an emphasis on building this cross-border region via uh, common projects, and that can be uh, bridges over, over, over the river of the Rhine, for example, but it can also be um, uh, projects in trans Sport, in environmental protection, in uh, for in in um, uh, in cultural cooperation, lots of different uh, spheres um, of the, the 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 public life. Many thanks, Birte. Um, we spoke about uh, different actors. We spoke about different tools. Uh, let's now speak about the different challenges <clears throat> for our audience. What are the main challenges of the cross-border cooperation and cross-border relations um, is it still and i'm i'm sure it depends of the of the nature the legal nature of each state but is it still and always this category of national sovereignty over foreign affairs and international uh, relations this notion of sovereignty could be a huge obstacle for the cross-border relation yes yes or not i think uh it, it's uh not really um I don't think the challenge is to to uh, abolish uh, national sovereignty and replace it with regional sovereignty. That would be, you know, the Europe of the regions and let's get rid of the national states. There has been an approach to cross-border cooperation in the past, but I don't think this is the real challenge uh, nowadays. What we do have, the challenge is more the multi, how to implement multi-level governance for cross-border cooperation, where we do take into account a European level of governance, meaning the EU, uh, a national uh, governance, meaning the national states, and the regional uh, governance, meaning the uh, the competences of the regions. And, and I might also add uh, the last level is the one of the, the towns or the, the local authorities. And in this multi-level governance, um, I mean, the uh, the Treaty of Maastricht has, um, in fact, introduced in 1992 this idea of a principle of subsidiarity, meaning that each level has to intervene um, uh, where it can best 
um, um, uh, is best if, or is most efficient uh, in implementing activities. And uh, that's the idea of subsidiarity. So, and it's also the idea of having it, if possible, each activity implemented in the most closest level to the citizen. This puts a big emphasis on on the necessity to to um, associate more the regions and the towns into um, uh, public policy. Uh, and uh, this is something that the um, uh, local and regional actors have actually in Europe acquired as a right, as a, uh, because um, uh, since the Lisbon Treaty of 2009, the uh, the subsidiary, uh, the, the principle of subsidiarity can be actually um, put before the European court. So if uh, the European Union does not associate or the national states in the in, in, in Brussels, if they do not associate the regions, for example, for the cohesion policy, then the regions can go before the court and claim that they have uh, that they should uh, be able to participate in the decision making process. So the, the question is, how do we um, uh, divide the roles. Who is doing what uh, in cross-border cooperation? And uh, I can best illustrate this challenge with the COVID crisis. In the COVID crisis, we had um, a phenomenon of um, rebordering, which was uh, not done by the European Union, but the, because the competence was mainly on the national states. So the national states introduced a sudden and abrupt rebordering. This disrupted immensely the life of cross-border regions and of integrated cross-border spaces. And the cross-border actors, uh, the cross-border institutions, but also the regional and local authorities had not been associated to this decision-making process of bordering. And this has been remarked uh, in the COVID crisis because it has created a lot of problems in the border regions serious problems of uh, separation of families, of uh, a problem for cross-border workers. And so uh, in some border regions, as a reaction, uh, they have now um, created groups, working groups, where they do put national authorities together with the regional authorities so that there can be a common response to crisis, for example. And that is a big challenge because uh, it means that you have to make the national authorities understand, not abolish sovereignty, but to make them understand if you are taking a decision that affect, that affect, that might, this decision, like the bordering decision, might affect our border regions, particularly and in a way that you have not thought about. And that might be extremely difficult for the border regions, but not for the rest of the countries. Uh, and so um, with this idea of the specificity of the border spaces and the necessity to be associated to the national decision-making procedure, you can then create a kind of um, uh, level of, of, um, uh, of uh, discussion where you avoid uh, a disruption, for example, of integrated spaces. This is a big challenge. Another challenge for cross-border uh, cooperation is also, and they call this in Europe, the European mechanism, uh, which for the moment is unfortunately blocked at the European Union by some of the member states. The European mechanism uh, takes on the challenge of what do we do if we have more and more um, important cross-border projects that do touch on the sovereignty of the state, for example, in the health sector, or in the if we want to create a, a hospital, a, a binational hospital, for example, that has been created between France and Spain, it exists. But this poses a lot of legal problems because the law uh, is uh, stops at the border. And the European mechanism, the challenge is that 
it, it envisages taking the national law across the border and applying national law on the other side of the border. That means that the national state has to give up sovereignty uh, in one area, functional area, for example, for the hospital or for a tramway uh, in order to facilitate the cross-border project. And that is a real challenge. And the national states for the moment resist this because they do not want to give up this sovereignty. There is this, um, that's a challenge. It means that the more you integrate border regions, the more you come to this um, limit of um, of legal and administrative borders, and you have to try and find a way how to deal with uh, with these problems of sovereignty. And one uh, solution would be the mechanism. Another solution is mutual recognition. The legal experts always call for mutual recognition. If you uh, recognize the the mutually the law on the other side, you might not even need to export law on the other side of the border. The last challenge, and this is not a, uh, this is probably a very, very important one, is also we mustn't forget uh, about the mental borders that can exist in border regions. That's a real challenge for cross-border cooperation. We are in a phase where we do have more and more of Euroscepticism. We have more and more of populist, nationalist, uh, xenophobic movements, political movements that do not go in favor of European integration and that do not go in favor of cross-border cooperation. And in order to avoid a, a drawback of the cross-border cooperation and of the integrated border spaces, we have to uh, make sure that uh, there is still an understanding of the population and we have an intercultural understanding. In many border regions, for example, regional languages disappear. So there are new language barriers also. So we must make sure that the people in the border regions continue to, to understand each other and to also um, uh, uh, to communicate, to work together and to um, in a European and then a cross-border context. And so this has been something that has been revealed also with a um, COVID crisis because there has been a lot of ressentiment against uh, uh, cross-border workers, uh, which put into question this period of which we have had of Franco-German or European reconciliation. So be aware of the of the mental borders and uh, not fall back in the advancement of cross-border cooperation because people become more nationalistic and they do no longer want to cooperate with their neighbors. Thank you, Birte, for this great overview of the different um, challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, the statistics speak for themselves. 40% of the European territory are border regions. One third of the European population lives in border regions. Uh, now, here's a question that connects geography and, and history. If we could look to the European continent and the uh, EU member states, uh, which European borders are, are the most dynamic in terms of cross-border cooperation? Are there uh, historical reasons for this dynamism? That's a, a very, very good question. Uh, I would say, I mean, you have to be very careful because how do you define dynamic cross-border cooperation? Um, historically speaking, of course, the most dynamic border regions are those that have started the cross-border cooperation early in the history. And that's, for example, the greater region uh, alongside the Franco-German border, greater region, upper Rhine region, but also in the whole of the Benelux states. That's kind of the core of cross-border cooperation, where we have really a, a strong uh, history. And this has led also to a lot of cross-border projects during the interreg 
periods because there had already been so many links and and and, and cooperation uh, that uh, the actors could uh, use this um, and build on this experience in order to then implement cross-border projects. But uh, as I said before, in the 1990s, the cross-border corporate has been enlarged. And uh, we have also, if, if you look, for example, at, at the map of Euro regions, you would say the most dynamic um, uh, or of EGTCs, the most dynamic uh, regions in Europe are not the Western European regions of the, of the founding member states of the European community, but rather the um uh, uh the eastern uh, european regions at the border between uh, for example germany and poland or even in uh, between Ch uh, Ch the czech republic and poland uh, or, or around hungary uh, the most of the EGTCs are in Hungary, around Hungary. So um, Euroregion's dynamics have been very, very uh, much uh, um, uh, have, have, I would say, uh, doubled uh, in, in in terms of uh, of um, uh, development uh, from the nineties until now, and they uh, they are much more important now than in Western Europe. So uh, it depends on the criteria you use. If you you can also say, for example, uh, measure the dynamics of cross-border cooperation uh, by means of cross-border uh, institutions. Here again, uh, you will find most institutions in um, Western uh, Europe, uh, but this is also due to the, I would say, the political culture and tradition because they like formalized uh, cooperation. If you look, for example, United Kingdom and Ireland, the region of Northern Ireland, uh, there are not a lot of uh, formal structures, but they do have a very dynamic cross-border cooperation in terms also of implementation of the peace programs uh, from the 1990s, which have actually um, uh, helped to overcome the conflict in Northern Ireland. So this has also been very dynamic, but you cannot see it on a map if you measure it with institutions. You can see it if you measure it with, for example, projects of um, peace uh, peace programs uh, or interreg projects. So it really depends on um, on the uh, uh, on, on the criteria you use because it's also um, a question of how um, dense the population is in cross border uh, regions. If you take, for example, France and you take the the, the town of Lille, this is of course a very um, it's a metropole, uh, and so around metropoles, the cross-border cooperation is, of course, very dynamic. Uh, if you like, take uh, rural areas in, uh, for example, Scandinavia, you will have, of course, a lot of less less cross-border uh, cooperation in terms of, you know, institutions or in terms of projects because there are just less people living there. Uh, and then uh, you also have to take into account, of course, all the historical um, uh, um past of the border regions. And there you can also say that there are some border regions which have difficulties. Uh, for example, if you take the border region between um, Germany and Denmark, I mean, historically speaking, this has been a very, um, there are minorities on each side of the border. And so uh, the, the cross-border cooperation has not been evident. It is there, but it is, um, I would say that the, it, it suffers from, from the difficult past in the region. And this is an explanation why it's maybe it's not so dynamic as, for example, cooperation between uh, uh, Germany and, and, and France. So uh, really, um, uh, we can say that historically speaking, we have a benefit of uh, the core countries uh, of the European community in Western Europe. But uh, nowadays, um, cross-border cooperation, as you said, it has spread so much uh, to um, uh, thanks to the interreg programs, and it has diversified. 
And so I would say that we find uh, cross-border cooperation now uh, everywhere in the European Union. And we mustn't forget also the external cooperation at the external borders, which is an extremely important cooperation. You cannot see it in terms of institutions, but you can see it if you look at good neighborhood relations and, for example, at the common effort to combat cross-border crime or traffic, uh, drug trafficking, tra smuggling, um, uh, human trafficking. These are uh, very difficult questions. And even if you if if maybe you cannot uh, measure it so easily uh, in terms of you know the number of projects still if you have less crime or if you have uh, a more stable uh, border at uh, uh, to the um, external border um, then you can say yes uh, this has been a very efficient cross border cooperation thank you Birte. Uh, you just spoke uh, quickly about france uh, let's take now an example of a case study of a particular country Let's take this example of France, which is a very interesting case. Uh, France was an archetypal, archetypal model of uh, unitary state. But today, the Article 1 of the Constitution provides that the organization of the French Republic is decentralized. In France, as you have said, the history of cross-border cooperation has seen an evolution in the terminology. We have gone from the expression decentralized cooperation created by a law of 1992 to the expression external action of local authorities, in particular since the law uh, of 2014. My question is this one, Birte. What has been the evolution of French policy in terms of cross-border and history of the cross-border cooperation? Yes, I mean, if you take France, it's an interesting case um, because uh, I would say that the cross-border cooperation has started in France very informally uh, by the willingness of some local and regional actors to cooperate with their neighbors. Um, uh, the, uh, these, the centralized France of the 1960s and uh, 70s was not able to um uh, to institutionalize uh, cross border cooperation in in terms of public uh, cross border cooperation even in this border region for example uh, between France uh, Germany and Switzerland the local uh, authorities the departments were not associated to official cross border structures until the 1990s but in fact We can say it like this, the cross-border cooperation with the neighbors has helped these local and regional actors to acquire more and more competences for small foreign policy, as I have identified this together with Martin Klatt, meaning that um, the French state in Paris has realized um, throughout the history with the border regions that they have an interest in allowing local and regional authorities to cooperate with their neighbors because this helps the French state to uh, facilitate uh, relationships with their neighbors in terms of Germany, for example, but also to facilitate uh, um, more complex neighborhood relations, for example, between uh, Guyane and, uh, and Brazil. And uh, the French state has, therefore, and this is why we have this change uh, from decentralized de decentralization towards also external action of local and regional authorities. The French state has um, realized that it is uh, beneficial 
for the state to allow the local and regional authorities to um, to cooperate more and uh, also on a uh, with le some legal competences with their neighbors because this helps the French state to be able to implement their foreign policy. I always say that the cross-border cooperation supports the foreign policy of the state. And in France, this is definitely the case. No cross-border cooperation has been initiated in France against the French state. And so there has been a, um, a learning effect of the French authorities in Paris who were maybe afraid of giving competences to local authorities in any way uh, to towards saying yes, we are. Um, uh, it can be. Uh, um, it can be uh, uh, beneficial uh, to give to make, let them contribute to cross border cooperation. And I think that the European integration process has also helped France to understand this because in the European Union we have states uh, uh, that are federations: Belgium, Austria, Germany. And in these states we have subnational units who are states and who have. A right to participate in foreign policy. And so in the European Union, we have this principle of subsidiarity, we have the Committee of Regions, and so we have this idea of multi-level governance. And so um in uh, in with the with the link that has been established between cross-border cooperation and the European Union in the 1990s, I think the French state has also understood that uh, in the European Union uh, there needs to be some space. For the local and regional authorities to cooperate, not necessarily just cross-border, but even on the European level. So I think the history of France is a history of uh, uh, of understanding that uh, you uh, that local and regional actors can contribute to the national uh, foreign policy. Thank you, Birte, for this uh, overview about the French history and the challenges for this country. Uh, when we spoke about cross-border relations. Uh, you spoke about that uh, during this interview. Uh, official documents speak of several types of cooperation across border. You spoke about territorial cooperation, like the umbrella concept. Um, inside this uh, expression of territorial cooperation, we have the cross-border Cooperation, we have the transnational cooperation and we have the interregional cooperation. Everything now is uh, linked in, inside this new concept of territorial cooperation. And this concept of territorial cooperation, of course, is linked with the new tool of the European grouping of territorial cooperation. But my question focuses on this uh, history of the EGTC. Um, the first EGTC was the Lille-Cortrecht-Tournay-Euro-Metropolis in January 2008. So it's like 15 years ago. What is the specific place of the EGTC in the history and uh, the future of cross-border cooperation? I think that the EGTC uh, is a very useful tool uh, because uh, it has the advantage of being uh, European. It counts for all the member states of the European Union. So it's 
a unique tool, legal tool for uh, cross-border cooperation. And it has been, uh, is extremely useful when you need um, a strong legal basis for uh, cross-border projects or cross-border institutions. Uh, a good example for this is, I've talked about the hospital at Sardegna between France and uh, Spain, which is in Spain. If you do not have a legal basis like the EGTC for such a, for such a common institution, uh, this is legally extremely uh, difficult because in a hospital you die, you give birth. Uh, it's it's a very um, it's a very um, there are um, legally very difficult uh, um, uh, questions that can uh, arise in such a common binational uh, institution. So the more you integrate, the more you need these common legal bases because they give you uh, uh, they, they give you a security uh, and they give you uh, also an existence in terms of legal existence for your cross-border structures. But I have also, um, this is very useful um, and also uh, another advantage is also that this uh, guarantees a continuity because if you have these legal bases, that means that you um, institutionalize and that means that that you um, that the cross-border cooperation no longer depends on the willingness of certain people, but that they become that it's it becomes a, a structure with a legal basis which is there, and the people then uh, come and go. But uh, the the structure it's, it shall, itself ensures that cross-border cooperation will last. But uh, still, I am of the opinion that uh, it is best to have an EGTC at the end of the process and not at the beginning of a process. But this is, uh, apart from uh, institutions like the uh, hospital, where you definitely need it from the start. Uh, why do I say this? It's because, in my opinion, cross-border cooperation lives still and foremost from the dynamic of the actors that are in the border regions. And uh, the the and so you, you must make cross-border cooperation live by the people and by it can be the politicians can be the civil society so if you it's it cannot be this cross-border cooperation the willingness to work together cannot be replaced by a legal structure and this you can prove because you can see a lot of EGTCs throughout Europe we have once investigated into this with my colleague Bernhard Reitzel and we have discovered that a lot of the EGTCs are still there, but there is nothing happening. Uh, for example, in some Euro regions uh, um, uh, in Eastern and Central Europe or the, in the Balkans, they exist. There is this structure, but uh, there is nothing happening. And this is what happens when you um, when you rely too much on legal structures instead on 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 the dynamics of the actors and uh, of the of the people who uh, who actually implement the cross border cooperation. So for me, the EGTC is a tool, but it cannot replace the objective and the um, dynamic of of uh, and the willingness of the people to to actually practice cross border cooperation. Thank you, Birte. Um, in twenty twenty, you published a book. Uh, entitled Critical Dictionary and Cross-Border Cooperation in Europe. In this very important book, we could read a lot of documents and a lot of articles about the cross-border strategies, about the cross-border public services, uh, also about uh, the B-Solution initiative from the, from the EU and the famous ECBM, the European Cross-Border Mechanism. So a lot of uh, new tools, a lot of new reflections, and a lot of uh, new uh, progress in the cross-border history, the cross-border, the history of cross-border cooperation. Uh, 
linked, connect, connected to the topic of the EGTC, some authors reflect on the idea of a European administrative law for cross-border cooperation. Uh, could we see this new trend about building uh, an, an administrative law at the European level or at the interlocal level as a new phase of the history of cross-border cooperation. What do you think about this trend? I'm not a legal specialist, but uh, I think, uh, I mean, knowing and uh, working a lot with the legal specialists here is that uh, you have uh, already uh, a lot of legal tools. You have European law, uh, on the which you can, if you want to have something for cross-border cooperation, which counts for the whole of Europe, you can um, adopt a European directive or a decision, which will be then implemented at European EU level. You have uh, the national law, uh, and uh, you have um, also um, uh, the idea, as you have just mentioned, of the European mechanism, which would mean that you uh, can maybe, if that's uh, at one point is adopted, but uh, uh, it may be adopted actually in the framework of the Franco-German Treaty of Aachen, where it also is foreseen, um, this uh, using uh, national law on the other side of the border. I do not think that you will uh, have a European um, uh, cross-border law. Uh, I mean, a lot of people have always... Uh, uh, in the past dreamt of a cross-border uh, law. But if you want to have cross-border law, then you would have to do what the European Union has done at the start. You would have to create cross-border institutions where the legal, where the um, the partners give up uh, sovereignty and, uh, and kind of uh, uh, create a um, almost a mini state in the in in the border region where they uh, adopt uh, legal initiatives together, and I can't see this happening because the legal um, the, the competences of the regions in Europe are just too different and too uh, it it could be maybe done by federal states, uh, but still even then because they have legal competences, but they have not they have they have no uh, cross border law doesn't exist. So I mean we could maybe imagine between. Uh, Switzerland and uh, Germany, uh, a cross-border institution uh, where the cantons and lender decide that they give up sovereignty for the cross-border workers and they decide now we have a cross-border law and we will install a court, a cross-border court, and the cross-border court will implement the law and the law will count on cross-border issues. But you imagine the difficulty, you know, first of all, Switzerland not being part of the European Union should have maybe not talked about Switzerland more, but Austria, but the, about uh, between the EU law, about the national law, plus then a cross-border law and I do I think this is makes things far too complex I don't think uh, this is something that we actually need what we have to talk about more is um, this idea of um, uh, instead of talking about law maybe talk more about competences and uh, in fact the Treaty of Aachen between France and Germany has a chapter on cross-border cooperation where they talk but give the euro districts and euro regions competences and financial means to put to implement uh, uh, cross-border activities, that would be already sufficient. You do not necessarily. If you need the law, then you can either have a bilateral treaty between the states, for which has been done in the border regions. We have bilateral treaties, for example, in this border region for um, uh, the prevention of natural catastrophes. There has been a cross-border convention. Uh, so we do have that tool, or we have the European tool. And I believe this is uh, sufficient. If we do have the European mechanisms uh, on top of this, that would be perfect. 
<laughs> Thank you, Birte, for this uh, brilliant yeah. analysis. <laughs> uh, yeah. We we are at the, the end of the interview, but I have uh, still uh, some questions for you. Uh, you spoke about the multi-level governance. That will be the focus of our next question. Uh, governance is a process of collective action, uh, decision-making, and also a system of regulation. In 1977, a Canadian uh, scholar used the term governance instead of government to indicate that we are referring to all institutional structures and processes having an impact on the making of public policy, not only the governmental institutions. And let's now uh, speak about this multi-level governance concept. Um, you spoke about that in the introduction of this podcast, but I want to have more details about the complexity and the possibilities of doing this kind of multi-level governance. And I interpret this multi-level governance as a new phase of cross-border of the history of cross-border cooperation. So what could be the impact and what are the impact of this notion of multi-level governance to shape or to make cross-border cooperation more, more uh, simple or more intelligible. Uh, could you say some words about that? Yeah, I don't think that multi-level governance makes cross-border cooperation more simple. It's probably <laughs> making it more complex, but it's still a good idea because um, if I mean the idea of multi-level governance is is a is a theoretical idea. As I've, I have explained this a little bit beforehand, it's uh, it's in fact uh, this idea that uh, decisions should not be taken um, only by one level of governance or government. Uh, but by uh, should be should be taken by different actors or different levels of governance in function of their competences and, uh, if possible, the closest to the citizens. It's multi-level governance is also an idea to associate the people, the citizens, to either European integration or to cross-border cooperation. Multi-level governance is not exclusively used for the cross-border cooperation. But also, it's also used for European in the European Union, uh, trying to divide tasks between the EU level in Brussels, the national states, and the regions, and then also the people. And so, if we apply this on the cross-border region, it means that we have, uh, uh, since we have so many actors, which I have spoken about at the beginning of this podcast, we have the local uh, authorities, we have the regional authorities, we have also some cross-border institutions, we have the citizens, we have the private actors. So um, uh, the idea of multi-level governance is to find um, uh, a way in which these uh, multiple actors can be associated uh, to the cross-border um, decision-making process and maybe also the cross-border activities. Uh, this is not easy and uh, it's um, uh, it's also um, it, it's quite complex and it's difficult to find a governance system which takes into account all actors. We have tried this, if I may use our uh, own border region here, we have tried to put this into place, this multi-level governance, because historically we have a lot of different governance structures. We had on the local level the Euro districts, then we had on the regional level 
the Upper Rhine Conference. Uh, we also um, uh, had uh, some parallel uh, structures, the associations, the, uh, your, the um, Regio Basiliensis, for example. Uh, and then uh, we also have a lot of uh, the uh, cross-border projects that are implemented by the Interreg uh, structures. Uh, so we had these all these different um, um, actors in this region and what they have tried to do is uh, find a system of multi-level governance with pillars where which they have identified an economic pillar a pillar for the civil society a political pillar um, and a pillar for the scientific cooperation and in these uh, pillars they try to uh, find a, a kind of way how they interact and that they uh, communicate with each other when cross-border activities are undertaken um that's called the metropolitan region. Uh, and the political pillar actually introduces the idea to have a multi-level governance between the local and the regional level, and then also to communicate with the EU level and uh, since the COVID crisis, also with the national level of governance. This is all very beautiful. And if you look at the, at the scheme, it looks perfect. Um, but in reality, it is very difficult to put into place because, in fact, the pillars do not necessarily communicate with each other. Um, uh, the economic pillar is rather independent. P private actors not necessarily interact with the political actors. The civil society is always difficult to associate to cross-border cooperation. Uh, the scientific world is also a specific world, so it's not easy to to introduce multi-level governance in um, in the border region. What does function, however, and I think this is extremely important, is we do have since the indirect programs a very good multi-level governance between the European Commission in the for the pro, for the programs of the regional po uh, policy programs and the interact programs a very good multi-level uh, structure where we have the commission plus the member states who define the programs and then uh, in the regions we have the um, secretariats and the political uh, governance of these indirect programs and they communicate with the states but they communicate also with the European Union the European Commission comes in the regions to uh, have a look at the projects and I think that multi-level governance for interact actually functions really well it's a good maybe a good best practice example even if I know that interact is often very criticized as being very ad administrative and not easy to manage but the governance of interact I think, uh, is a quite well um, uh, thought in terms of multi-level approach of governance. Thank you, Birte, for all these precious uh, informations. You wear a ball in, uh, in some of your articles to describe cross-border cooperation as territorial diplomacy and even as a small foreign policy. Um, what do you call, Birte, what do you call territorial diplomacy? What is it? Yeah, this is a very um, uh, interesting question, and it has, uh, if you like, um, uh, it it would take hours to to actually uh, um, define what really territorial diplomacy is. Uh, do you have to say territorial diplomacy? Do you have to say diplomacy of the territories, uh, or uh, do you have to say small foreign policy or secondary policy, foreign policy, or some also say para diplomacy. Um, these are all terms uh, that designate, in fact, um, uh, a foreign policy that is uh, um, practiced not by the national states, but by infranational 
um, actors. That's uh, the the overall um, uh, uh, approach to to all these uh, uh, this terminology. Uh, territorial diplomacy has been more introduced in the um, European framework and also especially in France because um, it's um, linked to the idea of uh, collectivity territoriale, uh, meaning, you know, local and regional authorities that are on a certain territory. That's why it's called territorial diplomacy. It means it's from the territories. Um, it's, a, it's a limited territory where you do diplomacy and the territories, if you say collectivity territoriale, it can be towns, cities, regions, and it's uh, this This is why it's kind of specifically um, uh, aimed for these uh, um, local and regional authorities. And territorial diplomacy is used in uh, with the purpose of uh, cooperating um, uh, with uh, um, actors across the border. It doesn't have to be a cross-border cooperation can also be territorial diplomacy, can also be interregional. You can also do that between regions that are not separated by the same border. Doesn't necessarily have to be cross-border, can be interregional. And uh, it means that you use, um, uh, in fact, um, political um, uh, links, uh, political uh, relationships uh, that you engage in um, uh, in uh, informal or more formal um, discussions about uh, common problems, about cross-border problems, about uh, about common objectives also. For example, in a cross-border region, let's together fight for the protection of the environment of our border region. That can be an, an objective. And um, you can use uh, diplomacy um, towards um, the European Union, for example, to do lobbying in favor of, you know, obtaining uh, money for your cross-border projects. But you can also use the territorial diplomacy for your neighbor. For example, the French region can try and convince the German region to go into rather this or that direction of uh, to convince uh, the neighbor to, to adopt uh, a view from the French side or vice versa. It means, in fact, um, uh, it's like doing a foreign policy uh, by the Quai d'Orsay on a regional and local level. That's a territorial diplomacy. What it is not, it is not done against the national state. The, I have mentioned this with um, uh, in our publications with Martin Klatt. Uh, we have also talked about secondary foreign policy because territorial diplomacy is used very much in the French context. Uh, but even secondary foreign policy means we are using this diplomacy not to destabilize or to go against the national state. We want to just deal with local affairs in between us and uh, do foreign policy in between us or do something together, uh, fight for something like uh, some financial support by the European Union, but not against the national uh, foreign policy of our, uh, of our national states. That's the main characteristic of territorial diplomacy. Thank you, Birte. Uh, with your lens of historian, uh, what are the factors, the most important factors for a good cross-border cooperation between local uh, actors? Is it uh, the, sh the sharing the same culture or is it the factor of economy or is the factor of the, the, dif the differences between, between each uh, local uh, borderlands? 
what are the main uh, factors to create and uh, to nourish a good uh, or a very good cross-border cooperation? Uh, that's that's also a very interesting question. It, I, I think uh, you, you can um, uh, you, you can you probably can, cannot generalize uh, because it depends on each border region. But uh, I would say that um, um, for all border region, what's necessary is you have to find a common interest in cross-border cooperation. You have to find also a common willingness to engage in cross-border cooperation. And the common interest can be an economic interest, uh, for example, um, uh, of uh, facilitating cross-border work uh, because it uh, will benefit to one or the other region. And that might cross-border work might actually be easier if you have a differential of uh, of, eco of the economic situation or if you have different specializations of the region. That doesn't mean that you have to have equal economic regions. Then in most cases, uh, you have more cross-border workers when you have differences in the regional development of, uh, of, of um, uh, border regions. But that can be, it can be an economic interest. It can also be in a political interest. You know, for example, if you take Northern Ireland, I mean, if you want to, the common interest is to get, to maintain peace or to re-establish peace. And so cross-border uh, cooperation, cross-border relations are built or are initiated for the purpose, not of economic development, but of appeasement of the, of the political situation. Um, it can um, uh, also have a cultural um, uh, um, interest, can be a cultural interest. For example, when you look at the Catalan region, uh, the, the Catalans have a very uh, specific regional uh, culture and they share it with the French side uh, of um, uh, at the other uh, on the other border, and so their interest can be to uh, to valorize this common regional identity uh, with uh, cross border uh, cooperation. So um, uh, you see, it's not so easy to say. Uh, is it more? Uh, is there more interest when you are different, or is there more interest when you are uh, when you have a common culture? It can be both. It depends. Um, it depends, uh, but what's necessary is you have to have a common interest. And what's also necessary is that you have to have the um, uh, capacity and the um, uh, to, to, to do cross-border cooperation. If you, um, and that can be uh, already very physical, if you have a cross-border region which is separated by a mountain and you don't have a tunnel, then it is very difficult to have, even you might have a lot of common interests, but if you cannot meet, <laughs> then you will not be able to do cross-border cooperation. So there are also geographical factors that facilitate cross-border cooperation. A big mountain, a big sea, is, uh, or a, 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 well, a river is not so uh, difficult to cross, but still you have to cross it, you have to have a bridge. Geographical factors are also important. Uh, and then there are also, of course, the historical factors. That's always a very important uh, factor in cross-border cooperation. Um, uh, the, the historical factors can be factors of common uh, uh, shared uh, past, uh, regional uh, past, uh, but it can also be conflict that you want to overcome. Uh, in the case of France and Germany, for example, it's a, a process of reconciliation and that can also, you can have that also between Eastern and Western um, uh, Europe uh, in the uh, after the end of the Cold War, so East-West reconciliation. These can also be uh, motives for, for cross-border cooperation. Thank you, Birte, for this uh, overview about the different factors which could help the cross-border relations. Um, my last question is about the globalization process and the global turn. Um, some people talk about global history or global international relations. 
What have been the effects of globalization in the field of international relations? Uh, and do cross-border cooperation relations and institutions have a place in this recent uh, field of research? Well, the, the globalization, I mean, when you talk about international relations and globalization, you talk about global factors that uh, that have an, uh, an effect um, uh, worldwide. And uh, that, uh, for example, I mean, this is uh, generally to, to, to also state that uh, the national states are no longer on their own capable of dealing with certain factors, climate protection, uh, um, uh, or, or even even uh, in the economic field, or even talking about uh, certain um, uh, threats uh, like international terrorism, or uh, uh, or certain uh, crises like migration. That's also a global factor. Um, the, these um, these global factors uh, um, that uh, affect uh, the national states, of course, affect also the regions. And so um, uh, this field is extremely important for the um, cross-border cooperation because um, you can say that in the modern world, because of globalization, um, the international relations are no longer the exclusive right of the national states in bilateral or multilateral diplomacy. It's uh, an affair which uh, concerns a multitude of different actors, not only cross-border regions, but regional actors, also the civil society. Um, you have uh, um, uh, also uh, ONGs uh, that are very active in international relations nowadays. Uh, so you have these uh, multi multitude of actors and they can all contribute to deal with these global factors. And this is a chance for the uh, cross-border regions to claim also their, um, uh, their utility in uh, in international relations. Thank you, Birte. Uh, last question, but not least, what is the future of cross-border cooperation? I know you're a historian, you're more focused on the past, but could we imagine uh, a future, uh, is my last question, a uh, future of the next trends of cross-border cooperation? Just a quick, a quick synthesis. The future of cross-border cooperation is, um, yeah, this is a challenging question for a historian. Um, I think uh, that cross-border cooperation is, um, if we talk about Europe, is um, still a field uh, which uh, can and will develop uh, enormously. We have seen uh, from the maps of Interact that the spaces of uh, concerned and the people concerned by cross-border projects have grown. I think this tendency will continue and that uh, um, uh, that the, the more cross-border uh, projects and activities you, you will uh, lead in Europe, the more this will become uh, a field uh, that is uh, concerning everyone uh, in the end in, in the in the European Union. So cross-border cooperation has started as a minor phenomenon at the margin by some people who've engaged in cross-border relations, and now it becomes a centerpiece, uh, in fact, of um, of uh, the the lift integration, uh, European integration by the people in the European Union. This is very important. Also. I think the place of cross-border cooperation in the European Union will also continue to increase because with growing Euroscepticism and with these international crises, uh, we will uh, there will be uh, more and more the necessity for the European Union to focus on the lower level of governance. They will have to associate the towns and the regions for their um, 
policies in order to make to, to bring Europe down to the territories. And cross-border cooperation is also one uh, is, is one occasion to, to be able to do this. And in the past, I mean, the cross-border regions have been sometimes identified as uh, either models or testing places for European integration. And I think this will continue and will be even increased in the future. Um, uh, the European Union has already uh, um, shown that uh, they put more and more emphasis uh, on these cross-border regions because they increase the cohesion policy, the funding uh, that is given to these regions. And they also it will also become more important geopolitically because when you look at um, the recent crisis in Ukraine, for example, uh, you see that, uh, that in fact, um, those who deal with, for example, Ukrainian refugees, it's, well, first of all, where do they come to? They come to the border region in Poland. They come to the towns there. And so you can see there the importance of the local in, in these uh, in these European crises. And you can see the necessity also to associate these actors, local and regional actors, not only for the for, I would say, the nice cross-border economic cooperation, but also for the difficult geopolitical cooperation. You can, uh, and I think this will um, probably with the global factors and with the, also with the with the growing uncertainty in Europe. Uh, I think uh, that uh, the the key uh, for um, for maintaining cohesion and maintaining also the 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 European mobility is the cross-border cooperation. So that's my idea. I think it will it will be something which will uh, gain still more and more importance uh, in the policies in the Europe, uh, the, as a policy in the European Union. And it will also get more and more uh, recognized by the national states. Because I think the problem was more in the past on the national states than in the European Union. And I think the national states will increasingly have to deal with the fact that the cross-border regions are specific places and very crucial ones for this future of the European Union. Thank you, Birte. And I think this uh, dynamism of cross-border relations by local authorities, I think it's also at the global scale. We could notice a huge development of these cross-border relations all around the world. And I remember an, an article uh, of Emmanuel Brunet-Javi about the global overview of cross-border cooperation uh, in 2022, uh, last year. Uh, and I think it's important to have that in mind, this big picture, multi-level of cross-border cooperations, complexity of with different actors, with different factors, with different processes, uh, always the notion of subsidiarity to create at the local level what should be created at the local level. Uh, and of course, uh, each border is very different than another. So the context is very also important. So thank you very much, Birte Wassenberg, for participating in our podcast series. It was an amazing and great discussion on cross-border cooperation and this very, very rich history. So a big thank you, uh, Birte. It was my pleasure. Merci. <laughs> my pleasure. Was... Merci, was... Merci, Birte. This was the Borders in Globalization podcast. Today we were with Birte Wassenberg. Thank you for your attention and see you soon for the next issue. Bye-bye.